Well, this is week three of our sermon series in the book of Revelation, and uh, we hope to equip you and help you every single week uh, as you read the book and as you study so that it doesn't feel intimidating and overwhelming, but instead welcomes you in to read and to see what God has in store for us. There's two big themes that I want to remind you of, because if we get through this sermon series and you can't name these two big themes, you have failed, and we have to do the series all over again through the summer. Okay, so don't miss these. Number one, Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. He's not just a little bit victorious. He's powerfully victorious. It, it's like if you took the second and third grade girls basketball team I'm coaching, and we are a mighty Team, let me tell you, we lost last week because we made a basket, we made a shot in our own basket, and we lost four to two. Um, but my coaching is going to be better, I promise, from now on. It's like if you took our, this girl's team and, and we played the Oklahoma City Thunder, it's not going to be close. I mean, we would be way cuter, um, but we're probably not going to win that game. And, it, and when Jesus, we see Jesus in Revelation, there's a fierce battle, but the outcome is not even close. He powerfully wins. He is powerfully victorious. That is number one. Jesus is victorious. Number two is be ready. That's the second big theme of Revelation. And that means if you don't know Jesus, that you need to know Jesus, that you need to submit your life to Jesus. And it means that if you do know Jesus, if you are a believer, that you got to hang on you do not give up no matter what comes your way. And Revelation tells us a lot of stuff is going to come our way. There's going to be difficult times ahead. So hang in there. So Jesus wins. He is victorious. That's number one. And the second big theme is be ready. Okay, we're going to keep reviewing this so that you can ace your final exam a few weeks from now. So in, in week one, we studied chapter one. And uh, I, I made this statement. And I, I just begged you, don't you dare get so caught up in how Jesus is going to return or when he's going to return that you forget about who he is. So many people have gotten so paranoid about all of the details and trying to break codes and figure it all out, and they've missed the real story is that Jesus is returning. Don't miss it. And chapter 1 sets the stage for the whole book of Revelation. It's a whole chapter about Jesus. Because John is seeing this vision, and he's expecting to see the Son of Man, Jesus, like the Jesus he walked with, the Jesus he fished with, the Jesus he ate dinner with, the Jesus uh, that he probably heard snore some nights next to him as they were out on the road and traveling. I mean, this, this human. But that's not who he sees. He sees Jesus coming back in all of his glory, a mighty warrior, a lion, and it's overwhelming. And so John gets this fuller picture of Jesus, and, and all of chapter one is saying, look, Jesus is coming, and it's hard to even describe him, but here's my best effort, and John gives us his best effort. And then, then Dave began our study of chapters two and three last week, and uh, chapter two and three are these seven letters to seven churches. Every church of these seven gets one letter from Jesus, and they all kind of have the same flow to them. Uh, you can kind of read them all kind of side by side, but they all start with a description of Jesus taken right out of chapter 1. And that's how all of the letters are introduced. Drawing back on, here's who Jesus was in chapter 1. So he who holds the seven stars, that's how chapter 2 starts, with the letter to the Ephesus. And then they go through and they say, here's what you're doing well. Here's what you're maybe not doing well. 
and then they get to the end of each letter, and it says, so listen up. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Listen up. And so my friend Charlotte, who's a church member here, asked me two or three weeks ago, she said, Brian, my question is this. What would Jesus say to Highland Park? And that's the million-dollar question. What would Jesus say to Highland Park? And I want to maybe reframe that question just a little bit. What is Jesus saying to Highland Park? Because he's speaking to us, right? And if you could imagine if just even today the skies opened up and our roof opened up and Jesus came down in all of his glory and a big scroll unrolled and he got out a pen and he began writing to the church at Highland Park. What would he say? And would we do it? Would we listen? Would we obey? It's with that question in mind that I want us to kind of dive into our text today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. And I, I want to um, build on kind of where we were last week and just try to answer, what would Jesus say to Highland Park? What's Jesus trying to say to us now? And my guess is that what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus and, for that matter, the other churches, would sound familiar. That the letters he wrote then would still apply even today. So in Revelation chapter 2, this letter to the church in Ephesus, there's a statement, and we're going to read some text here in a moment, but first I want to talk about this statement that we kind of identify with this church. The statement is this, you have forgotten your first love. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's if you've read that. But some translations, uh, and I, I really like how the NIV words it now, because I think it gets a little bit closer to the intent, is... Because when, when I hear first love, I think priority, the one you love the most. But actually, when you read that, probably a little bit better reading is, you have forsaken the love you had at first. So the first isn't necessarily priority. It could be a timeline, chronology of you have forsaken who you first loved, who you used to love. You don't love them anymore. So the context of Ephesians, which this letter to Ephesus and Revelation is great because we have the whole letter of Ephesians and we have Paul's journey to Ephesus. So we have all this background to kind of figure out what's going on here. Uh, Ephesus was this growing, big, commercialized, idol-worshiping, diverse city. And Paul uh, writes this letter to Ephesians, and when he's writing it, he says this in chapter 115. I've heard about your faith in Jesus and your love for all God's people. And then chapter 2 and 3 and 4, there's all this talk of unity, 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 and make every effort to keep the unity of the bond of peace. And then there's this, this outline of here's how you reconcile a broken relationship so that you can be unified and loving each other. And we get to chapter 6, and Paul reminds us that your, your enemy is not in flesh and blood. In other words, there's no human being who's your enemy. Your enemy is Satan. And so if you're not my enemy and he and she, they're not my enemy, that means I am to love all people. So all throughout the book of Ephesians, we, we see this love people, love people, love people, and I've heard about your love for all of these people. And then we fast forward a few years, and Jesus is addressing the same church, the church in Ephesus. So let's read what he says to this church in Ephesus, 
a few years later. So I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, if you want to follow along with me. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. That's good news, right? As you're listening to this letter, the church would have been. But then verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand, that goes back to chapter 1. There was a lampstand that represented each of the churches. And Jesus is saying is, if you don't straighten up, if you don't get it right, I'm going to snuff out your light. I'm going to remove you. I'm going to banish you. I'm going to take you away. This is a, a severe statement here. So in Ephesians, Paul starts off saying, I, I'm so thankful for you because I've heard of your faith for God and your love for all God's people. Fast forward a few years. Do you see the difference here? I appreciate I'm thankful for your faith, but you're not loving anymore. That's the change between the book of Ephesians and this letter to that same church a few years later. They, they still were persevering. They still were thinking about their faith and what was right and what was true and what was not. That part they were getting right. The part that they weren't getting right anymore was love everybody. Have this beautiful, wonderful love. Do you remember the greatest commandment? When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's number one. And he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So love and love. All through the Bible, we are told to love. We are told to love God. And sometimes loving God looks a lot like faith. We're also told to love other people. And that can be tough sometimes, right? We've all had frustrations trying to love other people. The vision at Highland Park, even in our logo and such, is to help people love God and love others and serve together. Because we know the most important thing in your life is to love God, to know that you're loved by God and to love God, and then to love other people. And we want to help you grow in learning to love other people because it doesn't come naturally for us to always love everyone. It probably comes natural for us to love some people, at least a little bit. So I have a friend named Dale, and I pray with Dale uh, almost every Thursday morning of the year, uh, he and a group of other uh, preachers. And uh, Dale grew up um, not too far from here, just, I don't know, six or seven miles kind of northwest of this building right here. Dale grew up in a neighborhood um, uh, that kind of touched another neighborhood, and this neighborhood um, had... Uh, almost zero minorities in it when he grew up in the late 50s there. And he went to a school that had just a, a real small my, uh, number of minorities there when he started. But by the time he finished, there had been this great sociological change in that neighborhood. And the people who used to be there all at once left when things started to kind of change. And by the time uh, he was graduating, 
that school was only minorities. It went from a couple to 100%. And there was this big change. Meanwhile, there was a church in the middle of this neighborhood. This church had about 350 people. And uh, every one of them was white. And what that church never quite figured out how to do, maybe never had the commitment to do, was how do we reach outside of ourselves and love people and connect with our community? And quite frankly, they kind of made the decision that they weren't going to try. And so fast forward several decades, and that church had whittled down to six people, and they handed the keys off to Dale. And they said, we're, we're closing shop. In that church's 50-year history, they never had one minority, never one, in their church. What happened? Well, there's probably a lot of things that happened. And we could probably place the blame a hundred different places if we wanted to. But I do know this, this one thing, that if we're going to be the church that God desires, we have to figure out how to love people, all people, the people that God puts next door to you wherever you live, the people that God puts next door to this church building, the people God puts in your schools and in your work. And sometimes that is difficult work. To be honest, it's really difficult work. There used to be a principle for the way um, churches were often planted, and it was called the homogenous church planting principle. Big word. But what it meant was this. If you want to grow a church fast, get a demographic that all looks alike, looks alike, has the same amount of money, understands each other, same family types, everything that is kind of the same, and you can make a church that will grow really fast if you just go after that one group of people because you'll understand them, they'll understand you, and they'll all look alike, and it'll grow really quick. And to be honest with you, it's kind of true. You can, you can often quickly grow a church that way. But what happens years later when the neighborhood changes? Or what happens when society changes? Well, you end up with a church that is not a witness to the community because they haven't learned to do the difficult work of loving each other. You know what my friend Dale told me is actually a bigger issue for their church right now? It's trying to figure out how to help the young and the old love each other. Generational issues. And the more I talk to preachers around the country, and I had a chance to do that this week, the more it keeps coming back to these two issues are so prevalent. It's not just... Not, not just Tulsa, it's all over the place. It's difficult. Our culture actually makes it difficult sometimes for us to love each other, for the young to love the old and the old to love the young because our culture tells the young, the old people aren't worth anything anymore. The value is the young people. So we market to the 16-year-old and we try to make music for the 16-year-old and clothes for the 16-year-old because if the 16-year-old will do it, it will succeed throughout culture. And, and this is what we go after. The rest of the world isn't this foolish, by the way. Many countries honor the elderly in a way that promotes wisdom throughout. But the problem with that is that then it kind of pushes the older people away from the younger, that be, and they can become very fearful and be like, well, I'll, I'll have nothing to do with them. And we see this gap in society. And I believe that the church is the only organization in the world that says, we love you regardless of who you are, what you look like, how old you are, and we love you from birth to the grave. That's what the church is supposed to be, to love all people. And I'm not sure what Jesus' exact words to Highland Park would be or to the churches in Tulsa. 
But he might say something like this. I love you, and I care for you, and I have one thing I want to remind you of. Love one another. People will know you are Christians by your love. You need to love your brother and your sister. You need to love the people within your church family, and you need to love the people who are persecuting you. So if someone says something evil about you, you don't have to defend me. I'm God. I don't need defended. You don't need to fight back for me. I'm okay. But you love those people instead, instead of hitting back or striking back. You just love them, and you love them, and you love them. Young people, I want to talk to you for a second. I want to ask you, are you loving and sacrificing for the older generations? And older folks, I want to talk to you for a moment. Are you loving and sacrificing for the younger generation? Jesus might ask, are you giving me your very best or is it half-hearted? Are you giving your best to something else, to other things? Are you complaining about how you aren't being loved, yet you aren't loving others? I think one of the great mistakes that young people would ever assume is they have nothing to learn and to gain by deep relationships with those older than themselves. It's one of the greatest mistakes a young person can make. And I think one of the greatest mistakes an older person can make is that young people don't desperately want them and need them. They do. I've talked to enough young people lately who have said and told me the most important and rich friendships in their lives oftentimes are not just with people their age, but with people who have been through life a little more seasoned and can say, yeah, I know what that's kind of like. My wife was mentioning to me how much she appreciated at a small group time a couple weeks ago where she saw someone who's been through a little bit more in life, a little more seasoned, talking to a, a, a mom who's right in the thick of it. And for the one who's been through that in life to say, honey, I, I know, I remember what some of that is like. Here's some things that I learned and just to, to hug on her and to care for her. I mean, you can't put a price on how valuable that is. A couple weeks ago, I saw this lived out perfectly right next door in the activity center. We had a, what was it, the soup fundraiser, chili fundraiser? One of those uh, lunches that we all went over there and we were eating. And uh, we'd invited some friends to come. And uh, she cuts my hair. And uh, we had been talking. And she came. And a few people know uh, her and, and her young family. Um, but they hadn't been here in a, in a long time, and we went over there, and I was kind of at the end of the line, and I was watching, and I wanted to make sure they somebody would sit with them over there. And as I was watching, I saw my good friend Tom get his food and just go and sit down right there with them. And then I saw Matt and Crystal come over and offer to hold their baby while they ate. Do you remember how awesome this was when you had a baby? <laughs> it's like the greatest gift in the world for someone to hold your baby for a few minutes so you could eat. And, and, and I saw them talking to Tom and being thankful to Matt and Crystal, and, and I saw this baby bringing great joy to everyone who held the baby. And I looked right there, and I said, oh, this is the picture of the church. We have four generations right here, baby, young couple, I'll throw Matt and Crystal up here somewhere with me. <laughs> a little bit older generation. All for loving and being loved and being richer for it. That's the picture of the church that God has called us to. And I want to tell you, 
my friends, it's a little more difficult to do church this way. It's a little more difficult to figure out how do we love this person and this person at the exact same time when they maybe both have different personalities and they both have different cultures, different backgrounds, different things that they like, don't like, all of that. It's a little more difficult. But I believe with all of my heart that God has called us to be that church. I hope you're on board with us. I hope that you can help us love all people because you know what the great thing about a church that learns to love all people that church has some staying power because a generation and another generation and another generation and if the whole neighborhood changes and if your neighborhood changes guess what we got staying power because we've learned to love all people regardless of who they are all generations regardless of who they are that's what we're after so if you were a Jew in the first century one of the most important places to go would be the synagogue. It would kind of been like your church, kind of the church before Jesus, right? And if you went to the local synagogue there, you would hear the scripture read, what we call the Old Testament scripture. And, and it would be an important time of fellowship for you. But one of the things that began happening to the early Christians was that as soon as they said yes to Jesus, the local synagogue kicked them out of their community because they weren't going to be okay with that. And the, the hardline Jews were saying, no, 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 Jesus hasn't come yet. We're waiting for another Messiah to come and be born in Bethlehem and die and rise again. I mean, they just missed it, and Jesus was right in front of them, and they missed it, and they persecuted the early Christians. So they would actually take their name off the synagogue rolls. They would blot out their name. So if your name was written as part of the local synagogue fellowship, just imagine a big old Sharpie going, psh, crossing your name out, blotting your name out. And that helps us understand Revelation 3.5, which says this, whoever stays true to him, to God, will never have their name blotted out from the book of life. Oh, you might have your name blotted out of the local synagogue or out of a business or out of a college or out of a job, or out of a school, maybe even out of a family, and out of some friendships, if you follow Jesus. But your name will never be blotted out of the book of life, and that's the one that matters. In other words, Jesus will be with you forever, and at the end, when the time comes for judgment, he will look at the book of life, and he will see your name right there, and he will say to you, well done. In other words... You'll be welcomed into eternity, not because you earned it, but because you believed in God and loved God and committed your life to him and because he paid the price. And as we've been talking about, Jesus has already done the work. It is finished. He has already done all that needs to be done for you to be forgiven. And now the question is, will you say yes to him? Because Jesus overcame and it is finished and sin is finished and pain will be finished and violence will be finished and it will all be defeated. But even right now, Jesus has come to give you hope and to say, it's finished, that I came for you and you can have eternal life. And this morning, I want to offer a time that if anybody would like prayer, if anybody would like to say yes to Jesus, even during these moments, we're going to have a few folks up in these front rows uh, that would just be glad to pray with you and to talk with you and maybe you even want to study more this week. And we welcome you to do that during this song or even today once we're done, just quietly to come forward and we'll, some folks will be up here. Um, 
And this morning, I just want to ask that you would remain seated. Uh, this next song you, you might be familiar with or you might not. But we just want to invite you to listen to these words and to make this song your prayer. If you would like someone to pray with you, you're welcome to come forward. But otherwise, we just ask you to stay where you are and, and to just make this song your prayer as you listen to it and you meditate on what God wants to say to you. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that you love us. And God, we, we acknowledge that the greatest characteristic, the greatest trait of the church is to love. And a loving church is a church that is a light to its community, to its neighborhood, and to the whole world. And God, help Highland Park be a loving, loving church. Help us to love each other different as we are. Help us to love our community different as we are. Help us to love all people with the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.